Hey guys, this is Terry here with Bushido Squirrel for your weekly knock news wrap up. And today we're going to be talking about the LAPD ending its predictive policing program. And then Sheriff Villanueva, who's rehired uh, four deputies who've previously been fired. Uh, and then we'll discuss a report in the LAist on a plan to spend about $30 million on homeless encampment sweeps. And we'll finish up with a uh, talk of a letter that's posted by the Alliance for Community Transit that outlines a number of problems with SB 50. Uh, and if you have story ideas, tips, or other feedback for us, please feel free to send a note to our email, podcast at groundgamela.org. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. How's your, how's your first time going? Oh, it's... Uh, Nerve-wracking, but but we're doing all right. We'll get through it. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it turns out to be pretty fun. And the, the audience, you know, almost never yells at us, so you don't have to worry about that too much. That's fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, this week it was uh, uh, not super busy for myself, but I did make it out to the uh, Stop LAPD Spying press conference uh, that happened in front of LAPD headquarters on Tuesday uh, before the police commission. And that's when they did the whole data-driven policing announcement, though everyone knew it was coming. Um, and this all stems from the Stop LAPD spying uh, people's audit of the OIG audit of these same programs. Okay. Yeah, which came out a couple months ago. It was a little bit strange because um, you're you're familiar with like Operation Laser and, and data driven policing, right? Um, yes, I'm not familiar with what Laser stands for, but uh, Los Angeles Strategic Extraction and Restoration. Okay. Which that is some Orwellian government speak, like if I've ever heard it. Um, but it was an interesting one because a lot of the points that were went that it went over with Stop LAPD Spying um, are kind of really egregious. Like the OIG, the Office of Inspector General, uh, surveyed like 10% of their records for the, the chronic offender registry. And the chronic offender registry is something you can end up on uh, for apparently no reason. So 100 of those records had zero points and were on the chronic offender, offender registry. Uh, and that means that there's 100 people out there, at least, around L.A., who've never done anything wrong, never crossed the line with the cops, who the cops still can stop and arrest on site because they're on a list. Uh, and this kind of got back to uh, what Michael Moore and Chief Charlie Beck were trying to, uh, trying to push before that and kind of Lee Bach at the, the county level, uh, where they want this data-driven policing. Um, we've got Palantir and other private organizations uh, that are writing software to try to kind of track and quantify everything. And this kind of brings me back to a book I keep citing here called uh, Kids These Days by Malcolm Harris, uh, which is more about millennial education, but it's this like management culture that we see applied to all of civilization uh, since like the 80s. This idea that you can quantify and stick everyone in a box and like be able to predict what they're going to do. Well, one of the problems with that is that it, it, it gives a, a veneer of neutrality or objectivity and the data-drivenness of it uh, allows us to say it's just science. But all of the data that they've mined to create these algorithms are based on decades and centuries of racist policing yeah. and impoverished communities and or impacted communities. And I was just reading, I think that uh, chronic offender registry, it's not just a list that you can be pulled over for. I mean, it's... It's tracking your cell phone. It's always it, it, so much worse. All of these uh, surveillance cameras that are on uh, the side of the road, the, the, the speed traps and all of these uh, through uh, Metro's iPass oh, lanes. Yeah. And so they're reading your license plate. And if you trip through there and you're on the list, 
now they're tracking your your location in real time. Yeah, it goes along with the the license plate readers that you'll see some of those camera or some of those cars rolling around with weird camera setups on them. Uh, you see a lot of parking meters, uh, like parking uh, enforcement cars that have like cameras on them now. Uh, ostensibly to track like, oh, that person shouldn't be parked there or whatever, or check parking enforcement zones. But that data is all going somewhere. Right. It's not just like that one time that uh, the parking meter wouldn't allow me to plug it again. It said you had to move. <laughs> no, it's it's uh, something also like we've seen the rise of body cameras and Stop LAPD Spying has been talking a lot about how uh, body cameras are really dangerous. And I never really understood why. And, and Hami Khan explained it to me in a really good way, which is all of that data is being captured and then fed into algorithms that are working on facial recognition. So every time you even just talk to a cop, like if you ask a cop for directions and he's wearing a body camera that's turned on, they've got your face now and they're tracking you across the city. They're seeing where you're going. And this is like the gang injunctions on steroids. We're like, the cops could literally stop somebody for wearing a red shirt in the wrong neighborhood and be like, oh, you're wearing gang-affiliated colors, and we know that the Bloods have a presence here, so you're probably a Blood. Uh, but yeah, what what came out of this police commission meeting uh, was like a good thing, bad thing, because we always have that here, where we, we're leaving behind the world of Operation Laser and data-driven policing for precision policing. And precision policing is basically the exact same thing, but with a new name. It's just broken windows on steroids, and it's more like almost gamification of crime and, like, LAPD as some sort of, like, quantitative understander of how society actually works, uh, even when we we know that this isn't what's driving down crime. Like, we've seen crime in L.A. drop pretty much steadily for the last 20 years. Violent crime ticks up every now and then, but, like, even when the the, uh, Nipsey Hussle murder went down and... uh, Eric Arcetti and Michael Moore were like, oh, hey, there's been all of these dangerous shootings and all of these people are getting shot in South L.A. Literally a week before that, they were talking about how safe L.A. is. So I'm never really sure how to read their statistics or figure out, like, is this working or not? And I feel like it's all just a money grab. Of course it is. So what you're saying about precision policing is really just replacing uh, the focus, moving the focus from the person to the neighborhood. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's 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 a, a one where. They're still creating special enforcement zones, and it's not clear exactly what's going to be different between precision policing. Like, PM Beers posted this entire hour and 15 minutes of public comment from the police commission, and all it is is jargon. Like, it's painful to listen to. It's a guy in a cop uniform just babbling jargon at you about, like, statistics and data, and you're like, okay, but how is that translating into people's regular lives? Like, how is this going to make it... So people in these neighborhoods don't feel set upon by the cops. And it it doesn't. It just is a new name on the exact same program. And they haven't announced like, hey, we're not paying Palantir anymore. That money's still going to get poured into companies that are owned by like literal blood-sucking vampire Peter Thiel. Uh, and that's one that like, I know LA is a tech hub, but imagine if we were using that to provide homes instead of like more cameras that can read your face. I just... I don't know. That seems like a much better society for me. Uh, but it, uh, the next thing that kind of comes to mind, because we're going to do another cop-heavy episode, because we have so effing many of them here in L.A., Sheriff Villanueva, he's still on his bullshit, I understand. He sure is. Uh, we all are familiar with the first, I forget the guy's name. I'm the, oh, uh, Mondayan. Uh, Karen Mondayan. Karen Mondayan, okay. The, who was fired. He's the one who was caught on video trying to break into his ex-partner, ex-girlfriend's yeah. apartment. And we all remember that Villanueva hired him back, uh, and now he's hired back three more sheriff's deputies who have been previously fired for various uh, 
alleged offenses, I guess. But mm-hmm. one, uh, what the the three of these uh, officers were brought back by the Civilian Review Board. But the one that Villanueva brought back was fired because he beat up a handcuffed suspect? Yeah, and apparently very brutally. Like, the guy was already handcuffed. He slammed him into a car. He punched him in the face a couple of times. Uh, Apparently other deputies, like, had to pull him off. And so he was uh, brought back on the force without any settlement with the review board. Uh, The the other three who were brought back by the the review board process all got like a $75,000 settlement with the board and, and with the sheriff's department. And I don't know if that means we paid them or they paid us. Like, it's very unclear. But $75,000 per deputy apparently went somewhere, but our process is so broken we don't know where. Well, the thing is that either one of those would be bad, right? Because if it's $75,000 going to us, uh, it's bribery. for yeah. your, That's pay to play for your job. Uh, and that's only acceptable at USC. Ha, ha. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting one because Villanueva has not been making any friends with the county board, which is weird because I don't want to think of the, the commissioners in this sense as the good guys. But they're doing a really good job keeping Villanueva in check to an extent and at least forcing him to try and justify this Mondoyan thing. And Mondoyan's still on the job. Like That's the part that's blowing my mind is he's on the job, but Villanueva won't tell us where uh, for, for Mondoyan's safety. That is really problematic. Yeah, the guy who literally beat up his partner, uh, locked her in a bathroom, um, was, you know, trying to break into her house a couple of times. Like, he's on camera trying to do this twice. Uh, And he needs to be protected from the rest of us, even though he's still got a badge and gun. I just, like, Villanueva winning was kind of like a, a hooray, we kicked out the sheriff. But now we get to do that again in 2022, and I'm excited because Villanueva is so bad at his job. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you next, is uh, w- to step back for a second and think of this in a, in a larger political context. And and because a lot of the rhetoric around that election was, uh, you know, electing a progressive sheriff. And, yeah. of course, our position is that there is no such thing as a progressive law enforcement um, but do you think the 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 way that Villanueva is acting now that he's in office is going to uh, discourage the left to, the, or those who kind of fell for that uh, rhetoric of, of reforming from within? Or do you think it's just going to re-energize us and say, well, well you know, what we're going to do is we're going to fire a cop every four years? I mean, I hope the second one. But I think I, I think what it points to a lot is. Uh, how people mistook populism because Villanueva is still, he's a populist, but he's a populist for the deputies. Like that's the the story that wasn't getting told. And a few people pointed out, like LA Taco talked about how friendly he was becoming with the deputies union and how he hired a bunch of deputies. Like Mondial was his driver. So it became basically uh, him buying off the votes of the deputies to get the boss out of office and replace him. And now he's having to pay that back. Like now that he's gotten the power, he has to return and keep the deputies happy. You know, I'm not a big believer in the like, you know, uh, keys to power like theory of stuff, but there is, you know, some good readings of that. And I think this is one of those because Mondoyan was clutch in getting the deputies union on Villanueva's side. And now that uh, Villanueva is the one that has the power, he has to keep them happy because if the deputies don't turn out and vote for him next time, he's definitely going to lose. He's also never held a position this high. You know, he was I think he was a lieutenant when he left, when he retired. Like, he maybe oversaw 300 deputies, and now he oversees several thousand and is a completely different, like, management level and answers to pretty much no one. Like, the county board of commissioners can't do anything. They can't fire the guy. They just have to wait around for the next election. But it's kind of one of these, I don't think we see that in other elections because I don't think, like, 
other unions are as powerful. Like our police unions are super powerful here, but like our educational unions, not really. Like they don't have the power to really like. Though I guess with Jackie Goldberg running for school board, it's a you know the union showing some power there, but it, it doesn't seem like the same amount of umph. Um, it, it feels like the deputies have been given the keys to the kingdom, uh, which they probably shouldn't have. Right. So we vote in the figurehead, but it's the rank and file who have the real power in the in the department. Yeah. Um, and the problem with the unions, I don't want to guess too far off topic, but it seems like our unions are, are following the, the broader political shift to the right in that the teachers unions, uh, my experience in AFT, was a very centrist. Mm. And very bureaucratic and just managing a status quo that that the the rank and file members uh, were not happy with. And I think that's where you see a lot of the wildcat strikes, Mm. uh, especially out east, uh, because the union wants to keep that uh, anger and that that grassroots energy kind of tamped down. But when you got cops who are the union members, well, we're all gung ho for that. Yeah. So. Well, it, it's one also we don't see how much money they're throwing around. Uh, like Mike Bonin, you know, we I do a lot of work with him through Sunrise Movement. Like he's a pretty good progressive as far as L.A. City Council goes. He's the top recipient of cop union money in his reelection campaigns. And that's a real problem. Like they're able to buy influence and able to box in community activists because at the end of the day, we don't have millions of dollars being paid by very high paid cops because that's another thing we don't talk about is sheriff's deputies are making higher than the median wage here in L.A. Um, L.A. LAPD is making, I think their average salary is 72 a year. Uh, average you know, income here in L.A. for a household is 59000 a year. Like the outsized amount of money we pay cops to like go out there and beat people up is definitely poisoning our politics and making it impossible to like not – well, it's making it, it harder to uh, decarcerate and to, like, de-police the city. Like, every year LAPD's budget goes up and up and up. Now, you know, it's going to be over $2 billion for this this next year. And that's 54% of our general fund. Like, I don't know how you compete with that when 54% of the city's money goes to LAPD. It's hard to even get a foothold in that sense. Well, class traders don't come cheap. Ha! That's a damn good point. All right, let's. Uh, you know what? Let's uh, talk about uh, the sweeps. Not sorry, services not sweeps. I keep wanting to say sweeps not services, and I know that's wrong. It's services not sweeps. This is a new initiative that's been launched uh, by several community organizations here uh, to try and get the city of LA to commit to bringing in actual resources for people who are living on the street. Uh, LAPD, se- or not just LAPD, but LA in general, seems like they're opposed to this idea. Uh, well, I've been uh, out of the loop a little bit recently. I've seen uh, the services not sweeps uh, kind of kick off on Twitter. But can you want to give us a little background on what exactly are they trying? What yeah. services are we talking about? So it, what they what they mainly want to do is stop sweeps unless they're posted in an, a, an effective way that give people a chance to like not be swept by cleaning up their areas. Uh, also bringing in mental health care services and physical health care services. Providing toilets, providing dumpsters and trash bins where people can throw stuff out. Because, like, one thing I realized when we, after we did the press conference, we were doing some cleaning up there. Because the city will come through and sweep, and they'll just, like, take all this trash and push it into the corner. And then they go. And they just leave the trash there in the corner and then use all of the trash that they've piled up in one place to be like, oh, this is still dirty. we got to sweep you again. If you looked at the amount of trash that you as a person who lives in a home uh, produce on a weekly basis and nobody came and took that away for you every week, you would quickly live in an absolute festering pile of waste. Like it's kind of amazing when you just remove the very simple things that a lot of us take for granted, how quickly that situation like spirals out of control. Like you could find a bathroom right now. Imagine if you couldn't. Right. 
Yeah, so it's but LA's looking to spend every year we're spending tens of millions of dollars on these sweeps. And I, I think this next year they're saying we're estimated to spend like thirty million dollars on it, something insane like that. Um and it's it kind of raises the question when LAP when LA is looking to spend thirty million dollars a year just like harassing people and sending a lot of them to jail, because that's the only demographic that's seeing more arrests is the unhoused. And we're trying and failing to spend a billion dollars on housing. I just don't know how you do that. Like I don't I've never seen a government be given a billion dollars and be like, we just we can't spend this. How are we gonna spend a billion dollars? Like I, I've never seen that situation before. Right. Well, it's one of those things of the this, the division of services that the city provides in an emergency setting. Uh, and many lifetimes ago, I was a, I was a firefighter, and uh, we had a, a a joke about why the fire department would you know we'd go out on on the ambulance, he'd go out on uh, any number of random things, you know, rescues and all that. We used to say that if you can't shoot it, they the dispatcher sends it to the fire department. Which, if you think about that, it means that the police are only getting problems that you can shoot at. Yeah. Well, you also see this in their general, like, approach when you see them in a neighborhood or something where, like, they never get called. Like, LAPD never gets called when everything's fine. Like, no one's like, hey, we're having a great barbecue. Call the cops. They can come hang out. They only get called when there's problems. And that begins to, I think, feed into their um, understanding of the neighborhoods that they work in. Because at least in, in some cities like New York and I believe Chicago, there are laws that say the police have to live somewhat close to where they serve. Whereas like here, they all live in Copabasis. Like they all live far away from the city and they do a three-day shift. So four out of seven days out of the week, they're nowhere near LA. They're nowhere near South LA. They're nowhere near the places where they're going to be patrolling. They're completely removed from these communities. And so this kind of takes us back to the the precision policing, this community policing. What does that mean when the police don't live in the community? This is turning out to be our, our most pro-police uh, empathetic episode yet, I think. Well, it's 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 one where I, you know, I, I think LAPD in their, the Nipsey Hustle uh, response showed just how bad they are, especially in South LA, because the trampling that happened um, you know, there's still like now LAPD says somebody was shot um, and it's not clear if they were shot or were not shot. But they said that somebody was shot in the buttocks, uh, which is completely different from like their first reports. Like the things changed literally every day. But there is a, an arrest warrant out for someone uh, for possibly shooting someone at that. But what I took away from it was the next day when they're like, hey, here's the plan for the vigil and here's how crowd control is going to go. And it's like, oh, this makes sense. It's like, where was that plan 24 hours ago? You guys knew this was going to be thousands of people coming out here. You knew this was going to happen. But LAPD didn't look at it as a situation to do crowd control. They looked at it as a situation to show up and be like, oh, we're going to be ready to respond. Like, we're going to have cops there, but not to actually, like, help anyone. We're just going to wait, and then when things get too rowdy, we're going to kick everyone out. We're going to throw some pepper spray at them. We're going to put on some riot gear and yell at them. And, uh, yeah, it makes for really good YouTube content, I guess. Well, I guess, yeah, the focus here, we it's on systems, not individuals. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, speaking of systems, let's talk housing for a little bit, because uh, SB 50 has been making some waves up in Sacramento. And this is the brainchild of Scott Weiner, I believe, uh, coming off of his SB 87, uh, which was last year's uh, attempt to create more transit oriented or transit focused housing. Uh, and this one's also meeting with a lot of community opposition. Well, the, the idea is good. And, it, it, uh, and the headlines sound great that we're going to increase urban density near transit. And so we're going to give all kinds of incentives to develop uh, dense housing near uh, transit stops. The devil is always in the details. 827, the devil's in the details with uh, what counts as transit. 
and the we're wondering whether or not this is going to be just a, a blanket pro gentrification bill. Um, and it was something like if you have uh, a bus that goes by every fifteen minutes, that is dense transit heavy. Yeah. Uh, it basically, if there's an express bus that runs within like a ten minute walk of your house, that technically that neighborhood could be upzoned. Uh, strangely, it didn't apply to neighborhoods like uh, Huntington Park by where I used to live. Uh, all of Beverly Hills, like Jacob Wucher had helped map this out and show exactly where the holes were. And it just so happened that all the rich white neighborhoods, weren't up to be upzoned. That was really weird with 827. And SB 50 seems to be uh, more of the same. And so we have uh, a letter that was, uh, I believe, penned by and certainly posted on uh, the website for the Alliance for Community Transit. Um, Co-signatories included the California Environmental Justice Alliance, uh, East LA Community Corporation, Esperanza Community Corporation, um, and like four pages of others. It was a really long... Yeah, public council was in there. Uh, Move LA, a bunch of a, a bunch of folks, um, and from a lot of different walks of life, not just EJ groups and not just transit groups, but also uh, public housing groups and uh, a lot of like immigrant justice groups, like Kiwas in there, the Korean Immigrant Workers Association or Alliance rather. Uh, so this has a broad like base that they're working from. And so in this five-page document that they uh, are, are they break it down into three main sections of, of critique, or actually two, two main, main critiques and then one sort of demand. Um, and so I'll just give you the headings. And so SB 50 does not generate affordable housing at a level commensurate with the incentives it provides. And that just seems like common sense. Like if we're yeah. going to provide incentives for affordable housing, we should get a, a return on our investment, to, to use the, the language of the capitalist. Uh, and then the, the second, which I think is, is more interesting, uh, SB 50 provides inadequate protections for sensitive communities at risk of displacement. And so what they're, what they're outlining there is that um, the, the, at sort of at the micro level, communities would be sub- subject to the, the city level determination of what kind of zoning or planning or construction is going to happen yeah. in their area. And uh, that means that you could have uh, neighborhoods that are, that are at risk of gentrification or are in the process, early stages of gentrification, where neighborhoods would w- not want more. To, uh, you look at Boyle Heights and, and how they are reacting um, out of, uh, you know, in a response to just years of being screwed over. Well, it's one of these where every time you kind of hold Wiener's feet to the fire on this stuff, he comes up with kind of sort of sounds like a good idea until you actually look at reality plan. Like one of his answers for 827 and stopping displacement was like, oh, hey, if your building is going to get like you have an RSO building that's going to get turned down and and turned into uh, a you know an up zone like instead of a three story building it'll be like a six or a seven story building or five depending on the neighborhood. Uh, what the the landlord has to do is take all the people who live in that building and move them into uh, sort of similar housing within like the same neighborhood. Which great idea on paper until you realize if that housing existed we wouldn't need eight two seven. So where the hell would you put them? And like those people will just end up on the street or end up having to move out of L A. So it's one of these where like. All of these really good paper plans like sound great, and then when you actually start thinking about it, you're like, oh wait, if if these paper plans worked, we wouldn't need the effing paper plans because the problem would have been solved already. And that really brings up again bigger questions of how can we manage any of this uh, the housing and affordability crisis if 
housing is still considered an investment if yeah. real estate is still driven by profit. Yeah. Because if, if there's one thing that, that human beings are good at under capitalism, it's finding the loopholes. Well, I think uh, Bill Przlecki, I was on a conference call with him a couple months ago. Um, we were talking housing issues and he said something that was really good, which was we currently look at housing as the chance for a landlord to make a paycheck, not for the chance to house human beings. And until we fix that, we're going to be stuck in this problem. I think that gets directly to the issue here because SB50 and SB827 are both market-based solutions. And they don't really do a whole lot to protect communities because, again, the communities aren't the landlord here. They're, they're not the capital owner. I, I was going to ask, though, because uh, since you teach at USC, you're seeing a lot of development around campus. Um, and there was a big fight around um, not just the FIG, which Marquise Harris-Dawson is, is uh, backing, which is just sort of south of the Coliseum, uh, but also the strip right along the Expo line. There's been some major development there. And What's been your experience seeing that happen around the campus? As uh, when you're on campus, you don't see it, and I think that's the problem, right? That that you, we have the the enormous university village that. Uh, I want back that shady bike store where I could buy back my stolen bikes. I miss it, I, and also the crazy Armenian guy who had a cash register. He sold cigarettes, but he had a cash register that he didn't use. He had just had a box full of cash that he would like give you change from. And a couple of times I got cigarettes with Canadian tax stamps. So uh, thank you, Armenian mob, for selling me cheap cigarettes. I remember that guy. Yeah. Uh, I, and I think the, the community would, would like back their superior grocery because they can afford that, where they, whereas they can't afford Trader Joe's. And they could probably afford the you know four or five dollar matinee f- movies that were run in that theater. Third run movie theater. And now, now what's left? Um, and, but no, on on campus you don't you don't really see it um, at all. Uh, a lot of the stuff that's going up the Expo line is housing, um, and so you know uh, those. Uh, but it's definitely not housing for the community. Like that's oh, not who they're playing. No, 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 there. no. It's uh, it's the the Lorenzo. Uh, oh God, the David Palmer. Uh, David Palmer. Yes, uh, and so it's those uh, that they, you know, and they run their own private bus shuttles. And it's it's funny. I was actually just talking with had a conversation with some of my students about this because they oh, we're so sorry we're late to class. We uh, we missed our shuttle. The shuttle didn't wait for us. Um, you know, but at the same time, like the the how the the unit that they're they're, they're living at, at Adams and, and Figueroa, um, that's the corner where that music student was shot and, yeah. and killed. And so it really there are safety issues that are that are legitimate. But uh, in the policing that the, the university's uh, Department of Public Safety does in the in the community uh, is also really problematic. And they treat the community around them as uh, sort of a hostile in- environment. Yep. And uh, they harass their stories of, of harassment of, of residents who are on their own property. Like, uh, yeah, you know, kids- that, that co-policing arrangement is literally deadly, literally deadly. Um, and then there are other issues that, you know, things that I just saw uh, in the reported only place I've seen this reported is in the, the university's newspaper. Uh, so go down them. But with the, the master plan for their medical and their health and sciences campus, which is up near Boyle Heights, um, which could be its own episode if we went, in, <laughs> went into it. Yeah. Um, but there's a 25 year plan that's going to double the size of that campus. Oh, wow. Um, something like a, the, putting in a 200 room hotel graduate student housing and uh, you know the, the there was community pushback and uh, the university has, has agreed to I think it's something like 10% of the the jobs created uh, long term will be you know for reserved for residents of, of within like a three mile radius but that's 
you know, the danger is just creating your own servant class, yeah. right? Like, I don't think those jobs are going to be the, the higher paying ones. It's going to be cafeteria, janitorial. Yeah, it's definitely jobs that, like, are not a career track, quote unquote. And it, it also kind of feeds into the whole, you know, Staples Center. Before Staples Center was there, if you haven't been in L.A. for very long, there was actually a neighborhood there. Um, like people lived there and then they all got kicked out and all of their homes got knocked down. Same thing happened at the Galen Center, which is just that big boxy red brick like monolith that you see on the expo line as you're coming up, which you can't tell what's going on in there. It's freaking beautiful. They have a really nice gym. Like if you can make it into that class, like good for you. Uh, but if you're just in the neighborhood around there, yeah, there's no way you're going to compete with that. And LA, uh, USC rather keeps saying they're going to pay back into the community, they're going to help, they come to settlements with community groups and everything. But ultimately, they have so much money that, A, they can wait out most community groups, and B, they can just buy their way through any roadblock. There's no politician in L.A. who's going to say no to USC. Absolutely not. And yeah, they sort of warp the, the transit infrastructure around themselves and uh, you know, so that things you know, oh, you can get from USC's campus to the beach now in, in 40 minutes. But Damn. Uh, I would have gone to class even less then. <laughs> no, it's it's an interesting one. SP50 is going to be like a big fight. I know this is going to be in, in you know, the Yimby versus Nimby versus Fimby War of the Worlds that we have going on on Twitter. This is going to be like the talking point for the next couple of years. Um, I, I don't know whether it's going to go through or not, but I also don't think that even if it did go through, it's going to help because even the rich neighborhoods that do get captured by some of the new upzoning SB50, that just means that your million dollar house tripled in value. Like a developer is going to pay you more for that parcel of land to put up a five or six story apartment building than any other rich person is going to. Like all we're really doing is creating a new way to pass money amongst the wealthiest among us. As far as density is going to go, like whether or not increased property values or, or a new five-story you know apartment is going to do anything about our uh, traffic problems uh, whether it's going to do anything about the the smog and, and, the, and the health conditions of the of the neighborhoods um, it remains to be seen you yeah know, it just seems like we're doing a whole lot of development without any thought toward a real long-term plan for the city like yeah. what, what are our water resources like uh, <clears throat> what is the heat and desert you know urban desert heat effect gonna gonna do to us in the, in the coming decades you know by 2028 when when we're all dancing to the Olympics uh, is this going to be a habitable place and and uh, you know without being too apocalyptic I think that's a real conversation we should have before embarking on all these 15 20 year uh, construction projects uh, otherwise it starts to look like this just sort of being like the last gasp of the the real estate and the construction industries mining as much you know extracting as much wealth as they can before we just sort of abandon the place yeah and, uh, and we keep seeing that around downtown where we have like huge projects that have just stalled out like metropolis maybe is never going to open it's a billion dollar project and yet like there's no one using it so are they going to finish that we gave them hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks to do that uh, but I was going to say, actually, it's it's good that you brought up the whole kind of like longer term perspective because uh, we do have, and I've mentioned this a few times before, we got the Green New Deal uh, road tour or what we're calling the road to the Green New Deal coming here to L.A. Uh, like I said, we're going to be at the Wilshire Ebel Theater on April 26th. Uh, doors are at 630. Program starts at 7. We got tickets online. You can go to bit.ly slash GNDLA. 
tour tickets. And the GNDLA all has to be capitals. Uh, I'll go ahead and stick the link in the uh, description of the episode, but you can click on through. We got tickets for five. 10 or $50. The $50 tickets are really generous if you can help us subsidize the cost for some people and provide some free tickets. Because uh, we do have a lot of community groups and folks coming from outside of LA proper that want to come and participate. Uh, Connieella Ng is going to be speaking there, uh, who's the congressional candidate from Hawaii, uh, also a DSA member. Uh, we're going to have Nuri Martinez, the councilwoman, is going to be speaking about her leadership on the Climate Emergency Management Department. And then a young woman I've been really fortunate to organize with, uh, Dee Garcia, uh, who's a first-year college student at UC Santa Barbara, is going to be coming and talking about her kind of uh, uh, experiences living on in a frontline community and what it means to be like 19 years old and be told we have 10 years to fix this or we're all doomed. Uh, so it's going to be a really interesting, really fun night. I don't want to be all doom and gloom because there's a lot of hope and a lot of organizing to be done there. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And then we've also got something like that uh, that Ground Game is going to be doing. Yeah, Ground Game is doing uh, some fundraising. Uh, we're going to have a, a party next Wednesday. Uh, it's up by the State Historic Park near Chinatown, uh, right off the Chinatown stop. Um, seventeen hundred nude, nod, 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 seventeen hundred nod. Uh, that's gonna be from seven to eleven next Wednesday. It's thirty dollars for a ticket, but that's an open bar for the night. So come yeah. get sloshed for. For $30? Yeah, if you can get that drunk for $30 in L.A., I salute you. Uh, since they're going to be apparently closing down the Good Luck Bar in Chinatown, it's getting harder and harder to find a cheap drink. Uh, but, yeah, we're going to have some Irva Mate cocktails, and we're going to have some PBR, and it's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of good organizers and activists and other people from around L.A. getting together to sort of, like, party uh, before we send a lot of people off to the convention in D.C. at the end of the month so they can go throw down and yell at our electeds and also do some office visits. It's not all throwing down and yelling at electeds. Uh, occasionally we sit in their office and talk politely with them, uh, given they're the right elected. And that's part of our dual power strategy. If you want to know how that works. Oh, well, hey, Terry, thank you very much for joining me this week while uh, Chris is uh, off in Portugal, uh, kind of researching some public housing schemes and looking at the decriminalization scheme that they've got going on. Because you may not have heard this, but Chris is going to be running for assembly. Uh, so we can't talk too much about that because we don't want to cross too many lines. But he is out there running in the wild, and it should be interesting to see where that one goes. Well, I appreciate you letting me sit in. It's been a blast. Excellent. Well, thank you much. We'll talk to you all next week.